Father God, we uh, do indeed thank you for the hope that's anchored in Jesus and his resurrection that we have today. We want to talk about that right now. Lord, if I don't miss my guess, there's an immense amount of diversity here in this room and on this campus here this morning. Uh, we have some folks who have been uh, believers in you, walking with you for 40, 50, even 60, 70 years. And then, Lord, we have others of us that might be relatively new to faith and uh, still, Lord, others who are seeking here today. Lord, one thing I believe about you is that uh, you meet each of us where we happen to be in our journey because you made us, you love us, and uh, your grace is poured out on us. So would you do that here this morning? Would you meet us in whatever leg of our journey that we're on here today? And may we walk out of here in about 30, 40 minutes with uh, maybe some more knowledge, even some more challenge, maybe even a changed life than when we came in. And so we look forward to your movement in our lives, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, those of you who know me, I tend to begin many times my message by asking a question, just to try to get us thinking about the topic before us today. So let me ask you, when you hear something or someone tells you something that they believe is true about this life, how do you personally know whether to believe that or not? I think that's a great question to ask this morning. That if somebody puts something before you, say on a philosophical level, uh, something that they believe is true, how do you know whether to accept it and embrace it or whether to label it false and ignore it? Uh, years ago, I was mulling through this question philosophically when I was in seminary, and I was reading some books by one of the more prominent theologians and thinkers of our 20th century, a guy by the name of Francis Schaeffer. And Schaeffer, in his writings, suggests that the two tests for discerning philosophical truth are this. First is that the proposition or assertion must be rational. In other words, it needs to make sense and be verifiable within our minds. And then secondly, and equally importantly, the proposition or assertion must be livable. In other words, it must collate with our experience and be something that proves meaningful and purposeful in our daily lives. And I like that. Rational and livable. Two time-tested truth or verifications that you and I have today that serve us well when considering any claim put before us. And what I have found over the years, folks, is that when confronted with various worldviews and numerous truth claims is that when something doesn't meet both of these criteria, and I mean both of them, be something that makes sense to me, but also something that will bear itself out Monday through Saturday, not just on Sunday, but prove livable in my life, then I tend to reject it. I tend to not see it as something true unless it meets both of these criteria. So take, for example, Marxism or communism. At face value, communism over the years has made sense to some folks. You know, the idea of leveling the economic playing field and being fair to all and making sure that everybody has their needs met. I mean, it's hard to argue with those things. And yet what almost 80 years of significant experimentation has shown us is that it just doesn't work. As you and I both know from observing uh, the world, it's not livable. There's too much competition that's built into the human personality, a need to produce and be rewarded for our production. Communism or Marxism fails as a truth claim to be embraced because it's not both rational and livable. Or take an an example that might be more closer to home. Take the worldview of hedonism. There are very few people that would say I'm a dyed-in-the-wool hedonist, that I live only for pleasure, but there's a lot of people who by their lifestyle tend to find hedonism, which is simply the worldview that lives for one's own pleasure, you know, the seeking of more and more acquisitions, material things to make us happy, they find that rather livable, especially here in America with our emphasis on materialism. 
So we find it's something that livable, that's livable for a while. But when put to the other test for truth, that of rationality, uh, hedonism falls apart. Because you and I both know that the, lo- that the life we have here on earth is not just about more and more happiness pursuits, but it also includes things like relationships and spirituality and other things that give us joy in this life. Rationality and livability, two good friends for discerning truth and to help us know what to believe in or what to discard. And so here's the deal. Easter, as most of us know, is simply about the resurrection of Jesus. It's a time of year where you and I pause, reflect, and celebrate something that the Bible claims happened 2,000 years ago, namely that a man, Jesus, claiming to be God in the flesh, died a brutal death, was buried in a catacomb-type grave, and then came back to life three days later. And then he revealed some things to his followers that they wrote down in portions of the Bible. And then he was eventually taken back up into heaven where the Bible says he sits and rules. That's the Easter claim. And interestingly, for the first 1,800 years in our Western world, that claim went by and large unchallenged. You can track history in the Western part of the world through the Middle Ages and up through the Reformation and and all the different parts of history. And by and large, people said, yes, we believe Jesus rose from the dead, truly and literally, and that it affects our lives today. But about two or three hundred years ago, Western Europe went through a huge intellectual movement called the Enlightenment, where people started to doubt the claims of the Bible. And the reason that that's important for you and I is that we now live in a world today here in America where it's kind of vogue to doubt the Bible. And it's kind of vogue to say, I'm not sure I believe that stuff about a resurrection. And I think it's okay to ask that question. Because you see, folks, if Jesus indeed rise from the dead, it changes everything for you and me here today. Whether you're religious or non-religious, whether you're spiritual or unspiritual, if Jesus came back to life, like he said he would, then there is a claim on your life made by Almighty God, and I think we'd all agree it's a claim that you don't want to ignore. And yet, the opposite is also true. That if it is untrue that Jesus came back to life, that if he's still in the ground somewhere, then we should all just pack up and go home. Because as the Bible even tells us, our faith then would hold no more water than, say, an old rusty bucket with a bunch of holes in it that might be good as an antique that you show on your shelf, but it's not going to help you very much. And so here's what I want us to do in our time remaining this morning. I want us to put the resurrection of Jesus to the test. I want us to use our two time-tested yardsticks for measuring any truth put before us, that of rationality and livability, and ask ourselves, Does the resurrection make sense? Would it make sense that God would send his son to this earth, raise him from the dead, and then ask ourselves, what purpose or meaning could that hold for our lives? Let's be rational and livable here today. Three things I want to put before you that I think the resurrection of Jesus means, and you be the judge. Three things that I believe become rational and livable explanations of the resurrection. And here's the first one. And that is that the resurrection of Jesus means that this life is not all that there is. Is that not cool? The resurrection of Jesus means that this life that you and I are experiencing right now is not all that there is. Uh, Pat hinted to a scripture earlier in the Bible out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want you to turn there right now if you have a Bible. If not, look up here on the screen. We'll put the scripture up here for you. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 12 through 20. Paul the Apostle 
who's one of Jesus' closest and earliest followers, is writing here, and he says this. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also we who have fallen asleep in Christ will have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, there's a lot in that passage there, but, but, but just under, understand this. The, the background here is that there were some in that first New Testament church there that were doubting that there is life after death. From our best knowledge, this was probably an influence from a Jewish group known as the Sadducees that did not believe in life after death. They didn't believe in a bodily resurrection after one dies. They believed that life was mostly material, not immaterial, and so they argued that there is no resurrection after we die. And, uh, and some Christians were obviously buying into this here, and they were arguing even in their faith in Jesus that there is no life after death. And obviously Paul's point here is that there is eternal life, but don't miss that his main argument is pinning our hope of eternal life on the literal and historical resurrection of Jesus. The logic being that if Christ was raised bodily after death and then ascended into heaven, then those who follow him will obviously be raised as well. As Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. But conversely, Paul's arguing that if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then guess what? You and I won't be either because we're just believing in a man who's six feet under and we'd be idiots to do something like that. And so his logic is simply this, that Jesus has risen from the dead and that if you believe and trust in him, so shall you when you die and you will be with him in another place. And don't miss, folks, that for the last 2,000 years then, one of the rational and livable explanations of why God raised Jesus from the dead was to prove victory over death and that this life is not all that there is. The resurrection reveals to us that there is life after the grave and that the content of that life is based upon our understanding and what we do with Jesus. I love how Jürgen Moltmann, a respected German scholar, says it in his book, Experiences of God. Look up here on the screen. This is pretty cool. He says, Easter is celebrated as the feast of freedom. For Easter is the beginning of the laughter of the redeemed and the dance of the liberated. Since earliest times, Easter hymns have celebrated the victory of life by laughing at death, by mocking at hell, and by making the lords of this world absurd. And I love how he says it. He says, Easter is God's protest against death. Easter is the feast of freedom from death. Isn't that amazing? Easter is God's protest against death. It's the feast of freedom from death. And folks, one of the reasons that this is so significant for you and I here this morning is that you and I live in a culture that doesn't view death this way at all. In fact, even many Christians don't view death this way. We don't view the resurrection of Jesus as God's protest against death and our following of Jesus into death as the feast of freedom from death. 
Quite the opposite. Tell me if this isn't true. We tend to view death as a terrible, tragic, and awful thing to be avoided at all costs and feared greatly if it ever comes too close to us. And yet for centuries before us, when death was much more brutal and quick than it is today, our Christian forefathers and mothers had a much different mindset. I mean, they saw death as a release, as a freedom from the confines of this world and off to a better place, a place where the resurrected Jesus was and was waiting for us. And don't get me wrong. I mean, obviously Christians grieve at the loss of a loved one. It's just that the Scriptures say we don't grieve like the rest of men and women who have no hope. It's a grieving mixed with hope. I actually describe it at funeral services as kind of a schizophrenic experience because you're experiencing grief and sadness at one time, but at the exact same time, if you're in touch with the resurrection, you're experiencing joy. Why? Because you believe that this life is not all that there is. That's not a pipe dream. It's not wishful thinking. It's a reality grounded in our faith. And it's very, very real stuff. You know, when I was pastoring in Canada a few years back, I did my first senior pastor post in Canada. I'll never forget, in kind of a shameful way, this being brought home to me, I was doing a funeral for a wonderful older man by the name of Dennis, and his widow Irene was at the funeral. They were first-generation immigrants from Ireland. Irene Budd was her name. And Irene was just this powerhouse little lady who had come from a pretty tough world and immigrated to Canada and, and just had a very, very strong faith in Christ. And they were kind of icons in our church, and Dennis had passed on to be with the Lord. And it was my first funeral that I had done in Canada there, and I was brand new as a senior pastor. So I just got to tell you all, I just turned on the empathetic charm. I mean, I got up there and I preached this wonderful message on, from a counseling perspective on how, you know, we all grieve and that you need to hang on to the memories and feel what you need to feel and unite as a community. I thought I hit it out of the park, actually, and, you know, just kind of, you know, ministered to the people and, and all that. And then at the end, I kind of tacked on and, oh, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead and we have hope that Dennis is with the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. And uh, I'll never forget, Irene came up to me after the sermon and, and, uh, and, and thanked me for the service. And then this little woman grabbed my shoulders and she looked at me and she said, but Jamie, she said, you preached such an American sermon about death. And she said, I would encourage you if you're going to be here in Canada and preaching to us Canadians to remind us that Dennis is with the Lord and to remind us that this life is not all that there is and to let us know that on his worst day in heaven, it's better than his best day here and that we can rejoice over that. And how do you think I felt as a pastor? Oh my gosh, this little woman's telling me how to, and she was right. She was right. I'd been an American so long I'd forgotten how to think, even as a pastor. I'd forgotten how to think about the resurrection of Jesus and to stop buying in to all that our culture kind of tells us with every day. And again, I'm a realist. We grieve, but we don't grieve as the rest of people who have no hope. We grieve as ones who believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Many of you know who Winston Churchill was, the great political leader of Britain throughout World War II. He died in 1965, and at his funeral, it was a very stately and powerful funeral, it was held at St. Paul's Cathedral and had stately hymns and impressive liturgy. And at the end of the service, he had planned something before he died, kind of powerful and unusual. When they said the benediction, a bugler high in the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral played taps, the universal sign that the day is over. And then after a very long pause, there was another bugler in the other side 
who played Reveille, the military wake-up call. It was Churchill's way of communicating that while we say good night here, it's good morning over there. How could he believe that? He was a Christian. He believed in the literal resurrection of Jesus, and he believed that he would be resurrected as well. Make no mistake, folks, the first thing that the resurrection of Jesus means to you and me is that this life is not all that there is, that there is life after death. And those of us who follow Jesus are going to experience it in his way. Now, when you think about it, we could almost go home right now, but we're not. But, but eternal life would be enough. We have just a few more minutes left, but there is more. And, and the more, get this, affects the here and now in a great way. So here's the second rational and livable truism about Jesus' resurrection. And that is that the resurrection of Jesus means that you can change. Now we're getting somewhere. It means that you and me can change. So check this out. Uh, John, 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. We're going to be talking about this book here over the next couple of months here at our church says this. This is a great verse. It says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, one of the things we're going to find about John in our look here over the next couple of months is that John was an artist, very poetic in the way that he expresses things. But unlike some artists that don't also tend to be kind of analytical, though some can be, John is very analytical. He always has a logical progression and flow to his argument. And so track the flow or the argument of his logic here. Give me a click here, guys. He begins by saying, and that's the core of this verse here, that you and I have faith. Every human being has faith. We have faith in the economy. We have faith in a stool to hold us up. We have faith in our family. We all exercise faith every day. But what John is saying is that when you place your faith in the Son of God, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, there is a power of God unleashed in your life that gives you what he calls victory or the ability to overcome, or we would say today, the ability to change. And so track the progression. We go from faith to placing it on Christ to then having power to the ability to change. And folks, this doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to change every single sin or ailment overnight in our lives. But what it does mean is that Christ's triumph over death gives us access to God's incredible power and love. And this, in turn, gives you and I the agility and even the ability to deal with the things that plague us in this world and even to overcome. To, to use a Christian phrase we sang about earlier in one of our songs, the resurrection gives us victory. It truly does. On a very practical level, this side of heaven, it gives us victory. So I remember a few years ago, again, when I was pastoring in Ontario, in fact, I, uh, I, uh, when I first got to town there, there was this guy who uh, was um, struggling a lot in his life and had just turned the corner. His name was Paul. He had been a Christian for years, grown up in, in a Christian family, but when he became adult, like so many people, kind of went his own way, and uh, he got involved with alcohol. And, uh, boy, it really ruined his life. He, he became a, a pretty, uh, well, he became a drunk and alcoholic. And um, he went through one marriage, was on a second marriage, and that wasn't going very well. And this had gone on for about a decade. And when I got to town there, somebody said, you know, hey, Paul was over in another town, a little bit away there. Ontario's got all these little towns. And uh, he experienced kind of a second wind spiritually. He was at this revival meeting and, and has come back to the Lord. And, uh, boy, he's really fired up about his faith, but I still think he needs some direction, Jamie. And so uh, I called him up, and I said, Paul, would you like to meet? And he said, sure. 
And uh, he said, I hear you jog. I said, yeah, slowly. And uh, he said, well, why don't we meet at Springbank Park and we'll go jogging. And so we did that. And on this cool morning, we met to go jogging. And as we were out jogging, I began to kind of probe and prod in his life and find out what was going on. And he just unloaded. And he said, yeah, you know, I've been an alcoholic for, for years. And he said, never been able to, to really get rid of that. And, and I lost my first marriage. And now I'm on my second. And that's not doing well. He said, but I got to tell you, a couple weeks ago, he said, I, I had this profound experience at this church where I've invited Christ back into the center of my life, and I'm never touching a drop of that stuff again. I'm done with it. And now, folks, I, I've been around the block a few times up to that point in my life, and I'd heard many people walk an aisle at a Billy Graham crusade and give up this and not do that, and then they're back to it in, what, about a week or something like that. And so I, I just thought, well, let's make sure this stays with this guy. So I said, you know, Paul, you might want to get some additional help. You know, you might want to uh, get an Alcoholics Anonymous group or some type of support group or some accountability around you, you know, just to sort of, sort of make sure because, you know, you're flying high now, but you don't know what will happen in a month from now. That moment, he stopped running. He stopped running, which I was glad about, and he looked at me, and, uh, and, 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 and in all seriousness, he said to me, Jamie, you don't get it. He said, I, I'm focused on Christ. I'm laser beam focused on Christ, and I'm not touching the stuff again. I, I'm done with it. And I thought, well, we'll see. For the next eight years, every year on his anniversary, he would send me an email. And this email would basically say, Dear Jamie, it's now such and such year since I uh, gave up alcohol. I still haven't touched a drop, and I'm walking with Jesus. And then he didn't say this, but he meant this. So there, love Paul. <laughs> and I got to tell you, pastors love to get notes like that. We love to get notes like that. And then let's face it, folks, all of us, in very many ways, are, are, can relate to Paul's story. I mean, we might not be stuck with something so public and debilitating as alcohol abuse, though maybe we are, but we all have similar and nagging defects that we just can't seem to conquer. Some of us overeat. Some of us tell white lies. Some of us have anger problems where we rage or we get passive-aggressive. <laughs> I love this one. Some of us go on shopping sprees. You know, only in America would you call something like that a shopping spree. Like, if you have too much alcohol, it's called an addiction. If you eat too much food, it's called a binge. If you worry too much, it's called an obsession. But if you shop too much, it's a spree. I mean, isn't that incredible? I mean, we've sanitized it to, like, no end. But let's just call a spade a spade. Some of us struggle with shopping sprees. Some of us gossip too much. Some of us worry too much. Some of us have depression. Some of us cut corners in our business. I'm telling you, if you and I were having a couple corner today, and I said, cut through all the crud, tell me what it is in your life that you've not been able to get over over the last, say, 10 years, you would have something. We all would. And yet what we need to see today, folks, what is so incredibly meaningful and purposeful about Christ's resurrection is that because of it, and because of our faith and trust in Him, we'll get to that in a moment, we can now change and become the people that we deep down want to be. You see, Jesus came to bring us back to the Father. And when He did, He forgave us of our sins. And sin and death are the two things that keep us from changing. And so Jesus knocked those things out right away there when He rose from the dead. And he says that anybody who follows him now has entered into a realm where you have potential victory you can change in your life. And again, it takes time, and it takes defining moments of faith. But all I can tell you is that over 20 years of pastoral ministry, I have seen profound change in people's lives. 
I have seen broken marriages restored, addictions and dependencies broken. I've seen emotional scars healed and deviant behaviors changed. And it can all go back to the resurrection of Jesus. I've seen chronic adulterers become joyfully monogamous. I have seen chronic liars become truth-tellers. I have seen chronic stealers respect people's property. I have seen chronic rageaholics become self-controlled. And I have seen chronic warriors chill out. I'm one of them. And begin to trust God and others around them. I mean, I know how some of you think. You're cynical like me and you're thinking, Jamie, is this really real? All I'm telling you is the experience, the livability of so many people around me as I've been able to pastor folks over the years. And so when I think about it rationally and practically, I realize that the resurrection of Jesus does mean power and change for those who choose to believe because it's worked for millions, if not billions, down through the centuries. So track where we've come from, folks. The resurrection of Jesus means that this life is not all that there is, that there is eternal life. It means that you and I can change, that we're not stuck in our sins. And thirdly, and this one brings it all together, and for those of you who love grace as a concept and a reality, you're going to love this. The resurrection of Jesus means that no one is beyond hope. No one's beyond hope. Listen close. Not one person here today in this auditorium, not one person in the city, state, country, or world is beyond the scope of God's love and grace. Or to put it in, in clear terms, the resurrection of Jesus becomes a universal hope for everyone in this world. I'm just amazed when some people say to me that Christians are so narrow-minded and not very inclusive. Because I wouldn't have joined the crowd if that was the case. I became a Christian because it has opened up to me incredible avenues of hope in knowing God. And Christianity is absolutely universal in scope. It says, come ye, come all. You can all have hope. That was Jesus' message. I love how the scriptures tell us this. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. This should put the end, an end to this argument. He says, for this, to this end we toil and strive, because we now, get this, have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Focus on those two little phrases. Hope set on the living God. And who is that living God? Only Jesus is ever referred to in the New Testament as Savior. So it's got to be Jesus, the Savior of all people. All people. And yet it, don't, it doesn't become efficacious. It doesn't become practical and real until you come to accept him. We'll talk about that in just a second here. But don't miss that this is the precise nature of the resurrection, folks. That Jesus came to us as God in the flesh doing something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves, dying on a cross for our sins. And by so doing and then rising from the dead, he has now given hope to all by offering salvation in the form of forgiveness of our sins so that no one is ever beyond the reach of Almighty God. No one. Hopelessness is one of the most powerful demotivating forces in the human soul. And it's so easy in this fallen world to get to a point of hopelessness. A broken marriage will do it. Kids who rebel will do it. A dead-end job will do it. Financial pain will do it. There's so many things that can knock us off center in this world and enter us into the realm of hopelessness. And what I simply need you to see, folks, is that along comes the resurrection of Jesus. And it offers us hope 
both this side of heaven and for the other. It screams to us that God is here, that he's active and he's loving, that he's with us, and that there is power and resources available. It lets us know that no matter how you feel, no matter what you might think, you're not beyond the hope and scope of the Father's reach. It tells us that if he can send his son and raise him from the dead, then it can probably handle your problems as well. That your life is not beyond his reach. And so let's go back to where we started this morning. I think Francis Schaeffer was right. The two tests for truth that get us anywhere in this world are rationality and livability. And when put to the test, I personally believe that the resurrection of Jesus gives us both. It gives us reasonable understanding as to what God was up to when he sent his son and raised him from the dead. And it gives us something to truly sink our teeth into, something to live by when it comes to applying these things to our lives. And yet in all of this, in the eternal life, in the change he can bring to your life, in the hope, it does take one key thing for this to be true for you. Now listen closely. And that is it doesn't take going to church on Easter Sunday, though that's a good thing to do. It doesn't take joining a religious group, though that might be a good thing to do. What it takes is each of us getting to a point in our life where we accept Jesus Christ. We believe and receive him into our lives as our personal Lord and Savior. As I mentioned earlier, it's the American thing to think that we're all Christians. I only wish that were true. But God doesn't call us Christians because we're American. He calls us Christians because each of us individually have come to a point in our life where we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as the leader and forgiver of our lives. And that's a moment in time for each of us. You don't necessarily have to know the date because some of us that were raised in a Christian family just kind of slid into the kingdom of God as you slide into home plate. We might not know exactly when our foot hit the home plate, but we know we're there. There's also a lot of us here today that, that might not have assurance that we're there. And Easter would be a great day for you to lock that in. So here's what I want you to do. Um, we put in the bottom of your outline there, in your bulletin, if you would all pull out your bulletins right now, at the uh, bottom of your note card there, the uh, outline, we put a little tear-off sheet. I'd like you to all pull this out, every one of you, pull it out right now and tear it off. So even if you're one who uh, is already a believer here today, I need you to work with me on this. Gosh, if you're a member of Scottsdale Bible Church, you must work with me on this. No rebellion here today. And, and, and participate in this, because we're all going to participate as we wrap up our service here this morning. And what I'd like you to do as you look at that response card is notice that it's representative of three different types of people of which all of us will fall into one category, and they're all very legitimate categories. Some of you here today are going to check off that you're already a believer or a follower of Jesus Christ. In other words, you came here today and you have a real solid assurance that you are Christ's because you've accepted him into your life as Lord and as Savior. You're following him now, and that's your assurance. And if that is you here today, we want you to check that off here in a minute. We're going to give you some time to do this as we sing a song here in a second. And uh, you're going to hand that card to the center aisle. We're all going to hand them in. And uh, the staff are going to take those cards, and we're going to pray for you. You can give us your name if you want to. You don't have to. But we're going to pray for you and thank God for you and also pray that he gives you strength in the coming days and months. There are some of you, however, that came in here today and, and, and you know that you've not yet come home to Christ. You know that you've not yet accepted him as Lord and Savior. And you might be ready to do that today. You might be ready to see that it's rational and that it's livable and that he came for you and that he loves you and that he wants you to receive him. 
And so all you have to do is admit that sin has made a mess of your life, that you do have sin in your life, and that he is your forgiver, that he is your savior, and that you want to become a follower of his. And if you're ready to do that here this morning, and I sure hope you are, I'm going to pray with you here in just a second and invite you to receive Christ into your life. There's a third category of some of you here today in which um, you are, are not ready to receive Christ here yet today, but you're still considering the claims of Christ. Jesus said, ask, and it will be given to you. Knock, and the door will be opened. Seek, and you will find. And we're going to pray for you uh, that as you say, hey, I'm still considering the claims of Christ here today, and we're going to be praying for you that as you continue to consider and seek that you find him because we believe God loves you. If you check off B or C, accepting Christ here today or considering the claims of Christ, and you give us your contact information, and again, you don't have to, but we'd love you to, um, we'll also follow up with a phone call and asking you if you'd love to get with somebody here at the church to talk more about how to grow in your newfound faith or even uh, any questions that we might be able to ask you in, or help you with as you ask in your journey. And so feel free to do that as well. But I'd like you all to fill this out and then hand it into the aisles, and the ushers will collect it. So why don't we do this uh, over at the venues and all of us here right now. Why don't we bow and pray, and then uh, after I pray, fill out this card, hand it to the aisles, and then we'll close with the response song. God, our Heavenly Father, um, one of the things you know I love about humanity is that, as Augustine said, we all have a God-shaped vacuum inside of us that is a longing empty vacuum that can only be filled by you. And we all have that. And, and so, Lord, um, I pray that as there are some here today who have filled that vacuum by coming to trust in you, that they might walk out of here with joy and assurance that Jesus indeed did rise from the dead and that it changes everything. Lord, give them that joy and assurance in their lives today. God, there's others here today that um, the light has gone on in their head and they're ready to receive you as Lord and as Savior. They're ready to receive your son Jesus into their life. And so, Lord, right where they sit right now, they pray a prayer similar to this. They say, oh, God, I know that I've fallen short of your standards. I know I've done things that need forgiving and that you call that sin. And I also know today, Lord, that Jesus is the one who came and paid the price, the penalty for my sin, rose from the dead, showing me victory over death. And I receive him right now. Where I sit here, I receive him and invite you to be the leader, the forgiver, the Lord and Savior of my life. Father, I pray that if somebody might pray that prayer here today or in one of our venues, that you'd give them that initial burst of assurance and joy that they are yours and that you are theirs. They've crossed over from death to life and their life will never be the same based on trusting you. Father, there's others here today that are still considering the claims of your son Christ and we're so glad they're here. God, we pray that as they continue on in their journey that those great truths in Matthew 7 where asking, knocking, and seeking will lead to finding, God, that that would be true for them. And that, God, you would continue to reveal yourself to them in their journey. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your hope. Thank you for the resurrection that gives us so much eternal life and life here now. Receive our response, we pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Oh, to see my name.
may the love of God the Father and the fellowship of his risen Son and the power of the Holy Spirit be with us and upon us. Amen. God bless you and have a great day.